for a day. But why we were shining stars for only half a day? Simply because it was the one of the darkest hours of our memory and the darkest hours of a country, of a place into which we used to live and we called home. It was disintegrating in front of our eyes. If you woke me up when I was like 10, 11, or 12 years old, and you told me there will be a war 10 years from now in this country, I would have never believed anyone. We were read to think and to remember that we were living in brotherhood and unity, and that we were on good grounds for the future. Alas, it was not so. In such circumstances, we were trying, as people who find inspiration in the Word of God, we were trying to find also words of comfort to those people. But what were these ordinary people, people who were trying to go about their lives? What, what was the experience that they were faced with as we were going to help them as Christian students? They saw the injustice, the fraud, and the political subversion. They saw the loneliness of the disadvantaged person against systematic and systemic corruption. The double standards in the judiciary. There is a very famous film made by a Balkan, very well-known Balkan movie director, Emir Kusturica. It is called Black Cat, White Cat. And it's situated right in the midst of the civil war. And the main topic there is like how people survive, many of them smuggling mostly petrol. And there is one memorable line that one guy, the main kind of gangster in the, in the neighborhood, says, to a very poor guy whom, whom he is abusing. He says, one guy once told me, what you cannot buy with money, you can buy with lots of money. <laughs> That's what happens. And these people were basically experiencing exactly that on their own personal skin. So what we wanted, all of us, all of us, we want justice. But it is clear that true justice requires truth. One of the most powerful scenes that I have seen in cinema or in the arts actually comes off this, displaying this kind of search for justice is a film by Roman Polanski called The Death of, of and the Maiden. And it depicts one unnamed Latin America, one uh, American state in which one woman has been systematically abused and raped by a person who has now, he, she discovered that he is now a reputable doctor in democracy. She manages to capture him, and this is a sequence of the scene. Her name is Paulina. She says at this mock trial, I will not kill you because you are guilty. I will kill you because you did not repent at all. I can only forgive someone who truly repents, who will stand in front of those who have harmed and say, I did it, yes, I did it, but they will never do it again. Roberto, the doctor, says, what more do you want? You've received more than any victim in this country will ever get. What more do you want? Paulina, the truth, doctor, the truth, and I let you go. But what is truth? Aren't these memorable words spoken by a man in power 
who was facing another person, Jesus Christ. And Jesus speaks about truth. And the power at the moment looks at him dismissively and says rhetorically, what is truth? But justice requires truth. But both for truth to flourish and those in authority, like Pilate in this case, must not dodge it by asking it only rhetorically. They must face the question face on. Why? Because we all have our own truths. I have witnessed so many truths in the bloody conflict of Roma Yugoslavia. We have the truth of our own group. First, we build a picture of the other. Then, we separate ourselves from the other or from them as the ultimate other, their enemy. Second, through separation, we see ourselves as superior to them. And third, we dehumanize the and thus constructed enemy. So therefore, it's just justifiable whatever we decide to do to them. There is an editor of a book called A Culture of Peace. His name is Alan Crater. And he explains in the introduction that the enemy is the one we are talking about all the time, but we never talk to. That's an enemy. It's an enemy is someone who we don't want to hear from. An enemy is the one who we depersonalize and label. We do this whenever we do not like the truth. We mythologize ourselves and we individualize others. But we yearn for reconciliation. But we are afraid to process, to, of, of this process because we consciously or subconsciously know that such processes are often abused both by our own group as well as others. I have studied patristics. I have read some of the church fathers. And one of the best things I have learned from them concerning justice and reconciliation is actually that we should learn and we should know that God must always be the ultimate desired being. We must not make even ourselves or other, other even reputable and very good aims, we must not molten them and shape them into a golden calf. Because even that golden calf was not called with another name. It says, this is Yahweh God who took you out of Egypt. So we must not put anything, even ourselves, even our highest aspirations, they must not become a golden calf. God must always be the ultimate desire thing. Because that ultimate love will uproot any other inferior love. The only way how you deal with love that, you, that is passion, that is bad passion, is not just by fighting it, but by planting a superior love there. How do we do that? The Church Father said, by three steps. One is the first step, practice. Because we love God so much, because we are so infatuated by Him, because the, the, our all being just falls into His being. We even, while don't understand what we, are, what we are doing, we practice, we learn, and that is the level of practice. By God's grace, we go on to another level, and it's called Fusike Theoria, which means the perception and the seeing of the inner workings of all beings. The moment you understand the inner workings of all beings, the Fusike Theoria, you don't have to grasp it and own it and destroy it. You can just let it. And finally, we come to the point of theologia, 
where we have the vision of God and nothing stands in between us and God himself. But in between empty space, when we don't put anything else between us and God, justice, reconciliation, a true embrace happens. The embrace in which the renunciation of the self is not renunciation of the material as bad by default, but it is a renunciation of a hierarchy. I know I'm speaking here to luminaries, to people who are higher in the hierarchy. I'm aware of that. But let me tell you that the original meaning of the etymological word was coined in the 5th century brother, by someone we don't know who he was. In the 5th century, in the corpus of Pseudo Dionysius. And he says, Hieros Arcas, the hierarchy, the sacred order starts with the Trinity and goes down. But every higher hierarchy is there, not to give orders and not to be served. But you know what? Guess what? Is to serve the Lord so that they can climb higher and they can have the full unity with God. If you are in any such position on the hierarchy, remember that you are there to only serve others that are lower in order to bring them higher than yourself. And one person that has done this in a tremendous way, reminding us of what we should do, is the modern theologian Miroslav Volf. He wrote the book, Exclusion and Embrace, in which he actually challenged us and he wrote the book out of the experience of the Civil War. And out of that experience of the Civil War, he brought the vision that we should be actually thinking about the other, not as the ultimate undetectable realm, but as the other who is worthy of searching out, opening up our embrace and hiding them. Why? Because according to, to Miroslav Volf, God, human justice usually is after, after uh, avenge. Human justice wants to avenge usually. God's justice wants to justify. And we should be after this justice. We should be after this re reconciliation. But how we can do it? How we can achieve that? Well, the Balkans have seen many, many conflicts. Too many to come. My wife and I have gone through so many uh, such ordeals. The civil war, then the Kosovo uh, crisis, then the, the small civil war in Macedonia. You just name it. But I will take only one story out of that to show you what really justice and reconciliation means. While we were working with many, many, maybe thousands and thousands of refugees from Kosovo just flooded <coughs> Macedonia overnight during the crisis of the bombing of Serbia, we as a small church had to decide what to do, and we decided to reach out to these people. My wife was befriended by one family that was very artistic, and the only thing they were asking from us to help them it was not usually food and other items that are the usual suspect that people need, but actually they started asking for books, they asked for uh, blocks to write and paint because they wanted to continue the education of their children. They were a large family. And one of them, he was like 18 or 19 at that time, his name Fatme, really befriended my wife and later he befriended both of us. And as we were to coming towards the end of, the, of, the, of that particular crisis and the family was going to go back, my wife, who comes from Croatia, who has seen tremendous conflicts, also is partially served and partially corrupt. 
So he looks, she looked at this Albanian family towards the end of this story. And, then, and she said, I want you to know first, before you leave for Kosovo, I'm a Serb. The response from these people, looking her in the eye, said, that doesn't count. From now on, you are our sister. Two weeks later, they come, empty house, all ruined. But down deep in the basements, they brought two caskets of wine that they produced themselves. Six bottles of wine, six bottles of red. They brought it and they said, our system must participate in this. Three months forward, a tragedy happens. My wife is Croatian, she cannot enter Kosovo because of certain <coughs> crossing borders and etc. And there is a phone call and the mother of Fatmir is sobbing on the phone. And she says, we were getting ready for a wedding for Fatmir. But tragically, she got he got killed in a car crash. But we wanted to make sure that you, our sister, know about that because you're a member of our family. So that is in the briefest possible way for me to share a little bit of my theological reflection, also of my experience, and hopefully it will bring a few things home about what does it mean to think about justice and reconciliation with it really matters. Thank you. These are things that are actually coming right from the field. 
Why from the suffering? Why from Maya's mom? And this refugee camp, feeling for the life of her husband and her son every day. So this is what was happening. And as we were challenged more and more, we started actually first fasting almost randomly. We started fasting. And, and we, were so, we annoyed the cook so much that she came to us and she said, you must choose a day because we are wasting so much food. You must choose a day because up to half of the people that were there would fast randomly and any day of the week. And then we decided Friday will be the day when we fast. So we started fasting all day long. And then we decided we are going to end with a, with a prayer. So the prayers developed and developed and eventually grew into vigils. So they went deep into the early and wee hours of the night as we were praying together. And then another organic thing happened. People started coming to each other and asking for forgiveness, embracing each other, loving each other, so that we can strengthen ourselves. We knew if our hearts were not ready for, for, for the, the meeting of the people that were, that were in the refugee camps, we better not go there. And Miroslav was so supportive of everything that we did. He came each in the autumn semester and in the spring semester, a full month he spent with us. And it was a, a very, very, I would say, uh, a challenging uh, time, but also a most fulfilling time as well. Why I think it was so fulfilling was because finally we were able to understand the link between what we were reading and what we were discovering in the Bible, how this has been interpreted throughout the history and theologically, and how suddenly how this was very much part of our daily routine. And as we were doing that, we had to actually uh, learn. The, the, the most important thing that we've learned again is something that I would like to leave with you, that I later learned it was the best thing that Church Fathers left with us. Forget about yourself. The best way you do things is when you forget about yourself. And the one, once you forget yourself, once you renounce yourself in the self of Jesus Christ, you discover not only yourself, you discover the Holy Trinity, you discover all creation, and most of all, you discover that God is for us, but not for a particular group. God is for all humanity, God is for all creation, and God is for all beings. Back to the Church Fathers. Every single atom of this universe will be redeemed. We must not waste it. So, Costa, how do we put into practice really loving enemies? Can you give us some practical examples of, of what that has meant in your life? Mm. Loving an enemy. Mm. Yes. One, one of the things that have happened at the very beginning of the Kosovo crisis was basically that we as a small group of some 35 members of a small evangelical church were thinking, how are we going to deal with this enormous, gigantic task that we felt dwarfed and so, so kind of inadequate actually to do? On the top of everything, being, I must say that, being an evangelical, Protestant Christian, you know, majorly is not those countries, always not the most simple thing to do. And sometimes you are actually, in a way, looked with suspicion 
having some sort of a subversive element in all of these things. And then all of these people that are coming across the border were ethnic Albanians, the ultimate other, you know. And we were thinking, what are we going to do? Reaching out to these people, being so dwarfed by the number and the need. At the same time, maybe the Macedonian society will continue to look even more suspicious on us, why we are doing this, what we are doing. And then we thought, are we going to lose ourselves if we are risking? Nevertheless, I think we obeyed the voice, of, the voice of God and we decided we are going to risk it. And instead of losing ourselves, it was one of the best times of finding ourselves. We discovered ourselves. One of the most beautiful ways was actually to see and find the image of God in those Albanian people, the vast majority of them Muslims entering their houses, being honored by them, being loved by them in a genuine way. Children rejoicing that you have come among them. And also, one of the most important things for them was actually that it is not about reconciliation on the level of just we that are now in some superior situation to them, helping them mm -hmm. to find themselves in an inferior situation, but to discover and to know that these people were also capable to be the ultimate source of good for us. And this reminded me of the story of the Good Samaritan. And that story is a very subversive story. Do you know why? It's not only that it's subversive because Jesus says, go and do likewise, but it's actually subversive because it doesn't tell the, the hero of the story is not your own people. The hero of the story is the ultimate other. And as Karl Barth, the great Swiss German theologian has said, reconciliation is possible only among equals. And this is what I've learned from that, that all these people with the image of God on that. We have risked it, they have risked it, but on the basis of all of that risk, we have discovered the anticipation of the kingdom of God. And this actually led us later into development of a variety of things that were reaching out to uh, the other communities which obviously around 30% of the people in Macedonia are Muslims. So my wife and I engaged, as a consequence of all of these engagements during the crisis, we engaged in an active uh, pursuit of justice and reconciliation within the Macedonian society. So we have set up and developed series of events which were called uh, conversations. And they were based not on the way of debate, not on the principles of of let me tell you who you are, and then I ask you very critical questions. But they were based on the premise that the other side, let's say the Muslim side, comes and speaks about themselves as how they see themselves. We honor them, and we only ask clarifying questions, and we honor the answers they receive. And then we do likewise. One of these young kids, he was studying, he was studying to be an imam. After that, after one of these events, we are having a meal together, we are sitting, sharing, sharing food, having great conversations. He looks at me in the eyes and he says, Please, sir, tell me, what is the secret of your joy? What is the secret that you are doing what you are doing like this? And I told him two things. First, Jesus Christ is the basis of all that, of that foundation, I have to tell you that. Number one. But I live out of this on, on two, I have two kind of maxims. I live those two maxims in my life. Number one maxim, nobody owes me anything. 
I owe everybody everything. You live by that concept, and you find out that you'll be joyful all the time. The second thing is that only the good remains. As Tolkien would say, evil, when it is even at its strongest, it brings the, the sting of its self-destruction. Good, even at its weakest, brings the power of life. An image? We've seen all those tanks going through Bosnia. And usually they say, whenever tanks passes home, in grass or whatever, meadow, nothing grows there. 25 years later, you go in one of those meadows, you will see that tank rusting. And that grass blooming. Only the good remains. That is the path to justice. That is the path to reconciliation. So, um, thank you for sharing so many Costa, you once showed me a story about how um, Nada organized the Christians in your um, area into cooking food on a massive scale for the refugees in your city. Can you share what happened at that time? Yes. Well, that was in the midst of a, another civil war. It's the Balkans now. So, so that was 2001, and we were going through a mini civil war where the Albanian uh, ethnic minority rebelled and our Macedonian forces, police, army were fighting. Our cafe and, uh, uh, and the bookstore that we ran that called Metanoia was right adjunct, just sharing a wall with the Ministry of Internal Affairs. And it was a special interest building, a special interest place, so that, uh, uh, because it was threatened that it would be shelled or bombed or whatever, all the time special forces were around the place itself. So the people who worked in the, that particular place, whenever they started issuing any papers to uh, the citizens in Macedonia, were especially, again, I would say, kind of angry, mad at what was going on, and they were not very keen on, perhaps at that time, serving the ethnic Albanians about getting their own, whatever, papers or whatever. At that particular moment, for maybe a week or two, <coughs> you would see huge, enormous queues of people waiting to get their papers. It was a, the tension was almost tangible. You can touch it. So, as we were looking at all this uh, huge group of people, we decided, my wife said, why don't we do something good for them? Why don't we come make some, you know, small refreshments or whatever for them? And there were like hundreds and hundreds of people, and just go in this kind of very sunny, very shiny, uh, shiny, uh, shiny weather, go and help them. So, as our volunteers were going out in the trays of refreshments, and just going to every single person waiting in the queue, because we were getting out of the building, which it was very almost impossible to say which door people were coming out. So all the volunteers that were coming out from our uh, door, from our bookstore, looked. It was very possible that people were actually coming from the door where the Ministry of Internal Affairs was. So as they were going and lining up, gently offering refreshments to all these people in line, you would have just seen how the faces that were scared, that were downcast, that were humiliated in a way, just being back into a human dignity. Taking all of this, looking in the eye with a twinkle, and saying the, the warm, the hardest, uh, hardest thank you, you can just imagine. And the vast majority of them thought, 
this is what the Ministry of Eternal Affairs does. <laughs> <laughs> and we actually capitalize. We just wanted people to feel that on the other side, there are people who speak different language, who are from different religion, who have different kind of visions about human life. These people care for them. And we want to envision a society into which all of them will flourish and live together. The second thing that we've done on a major scale, um, um, besides uh, uh, creating uh, a huge kind of a, some of a hot uh, uh, kitchen in the very central part of, of town, uh, it was phenomenal. This was actually a combination between looking after the refugees and also for the, all the marginalized and downcast and, and homeless people in town. We rented the getting emotional when you think about that. You, uh, we rented one of the central restaurants downtown Skopje, as central as it gets. You know, top, top notch. We rented it. And we found volunteers, we brought our own food, and we started cooking there for, for a week. And we just opened the doors, and we said, we started calling people, right? very much like the parable of Jesus, calling people from the streets, come in and eat believe it. People who were just digging into the dump that moment were entering kind of a downtown Skopje Central restaurant and they were waited on by very kind waiters <laughs> who were asking them what they wanted to eat and it lasted for a, for a week and it was a mixture between refugees and also uh, disabled, uh, I mean uh, homeless but also this opened our eyes to the need of other people. I must say our society has not been very good, things are changing now for the better, but our society has not been very good at actually making uh, uh, space available for disabled people. In, uh, whether in any, any stretch of our imagination, it's not encouraged. But and our church was in a way a reflection of that. We didn't think about access ramps, we didn't think about other people, we didn't think about deaf people, blind people very often about these things. But this, as we were trying to help the refugees, obviously people in dire need find out about that and they will show up in, in front of our doors. And we uh, got a van from, uh, uh, from uh, Germany, which was specifically uh, arranged for wheelchairs to come in. And then we started a ministry for uh, disabled people as well. The final uh, story I want to share with you was like, we were thinking, how are we going to help our society? Because we are blocked from all other places during this particular war. Not all the neighbors, the neighboring countries are very friendly to us due to our all kind of historical reasons. And we were thinking, our economy is suffering, mostly agriculture. Our farmers are now suffering because the business is not going on, we cannot have any export, etc., etc. And then, again, my wife had actually a brilliant idea. She said, why don't we combine the two? We fundraise with our friends, in this case from Germany, a lot of money, and we go to the farmers and buy that product and then deliver it to the refugees. So everybody wins. <laughs> and then that's what we did. We gathered hundreds and hundreds of thousands of, at that time, Deutsche Marks. They came into the country. We would go with trucks and many, many loads of trucks, got mostly watermelons, and we call it a watermelon project. So we would get it from the farmers, they were happy. We will bring it to the people who have all other amenities in terms of like the basics, but they were really happy in a very, very hot summer to get a very nice Macedonian that is watermelon. Not those people, but Macedonian, really, a real one. So this is
is what would happen. And then, on the, uh, as, uh, as we were, uh, the, uh, they started calling actually the people, when we showed up as, with trucks, in both sides, whether among the, among the, the farmers or with the refugees, we were all known as the saviors. And we thought, little do you know, why do we do this? And specifically because the, the Greek word about, about uh, salvation, basically, uh, uh, basically means dual things. It means salvation, but also means healing, to be healed. So in such way, we're thinking we're bringing both. And then another project, I'll finish with this, was a project that many, many babies were born in the camps. And these people had nothing. Their parents were all over the place, especially the fathers. They, they were all kind of uh, uh, divided in different, in different groups. So what did we do? We took a camera and we started walking from tent to tent and took photos of baby, newborn babies so that later in their, in their, in their lives there can be some memory for, uh, uh, for, for them to cherish. So, in short, that was it. Mm -hmm. 
but the other is an inexhaustible mystery to me. So that every morning I wake up and say to my wife, there is more mysterious things about you. It's not that I have exhausted you. It's not that I have come to the end of you and now it's only the drugs of your being. But there is so much more that I can discover. There is so much more we can discover from the other. And that is my challenge. Let us risk it and let us discover. Let us be always open to the other and let us always find others as mysterious as the Holy Trinity really is. In the midst of actually the terror of Stalin 
of the purges that Stalin did. He said that in the midst of a context that was very difficult, and he had actually to burn several times the manuscript of that particular book. And he dictated it to his wife as he was on his deathbed. And uh, I think my message to all of you here would be, uh, if I may borrow the same image that Michel Bontaco has, that cowardice is the worst of sins for today, on the 21st We must, in a way, uh, go out of the context of complacency, of protecting what, is, what we have got for ourselves, and just, again, the only word I've already said it, and, and then risk it all. Why I keep saying risk it all? Because the only way how God could have come on this world is to risk it all. And when we think about the cross, we think about the cross as the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus did, which is true in many ways. But actually, I would like to argue that it is even of more grave consequences, not the actual cross, it is of the gravest consequence that God, who is ultimately a categorically different, uncreated being from his creation, decided to become one of us. And as Dorothy says, says when she is thinking about such, of which Amy knows so much more, when she's talking about that, she says, but ultimately, when we think about the mess into which this world is, we can certainly say that God, through Jesus Christ, took a bit of his own medicine by becoming one of us. So my recommendation here would be, why don't we take that particular, uh, uh, that particular medicine and we offer ourselves to others? How is that done? I think the best possible way to do it is to always look for the best in other people. Always, always look for what is light, what is shining. And I'll give you one example. I have uh, some two years ago, I wrote an article as a response to one intellectual, a humanist, atheist intellectual. I wrote an article as a response. I sent it a very strong story short. I sent the article to him, and he wrote back to me in a very, very kind of aggressive way, dismissing me, in essence telling me I was basically stupid. And I would have actually caught all these words and I could have caught some of the mistakes, the obvious mistakes he made in reading and misreading me, in recorded that this were recorded, and I could have displayed him and shamed him. Instead of doing that, I wrote series of letters into which I sought him, I pursued him, until he actually saw what was happening. He wrote to me and he said, actually, now I actually read your, your paper. I read the first two sentences, I didn't like them, and I wrote the response. <laughs> actually, now I read it. He comes to our cafe. We had a phenomenal conversation that lasted two hours. And his platform is very kind of agenda for atheism. Let's put it like that. But he has published 13 of my articles, all of them based on the New Testament or the Old Testament, Psalm 37, Philippians 2, 5, 3, 11, etc. Why? Because I have missed it. I want his trust. And I'm searching for that goodness in him that I'm sure it was there. I don't want to ask you a question about Brexit, but I just would like to make this comment very briefly. Um, there's, there's very rarely been wars between two democracies, and unless we uphold democracy, 
we put ourselves in a very dangerous position. And the obvious answer which we're putting forward is that there should be a guarantee, a second referendum now, five years after we've left. So that the first democratic mandate is fulfilled and then there's an opportunity for a second democratic mandate and that will avoid wars and bring the country back together again. But the question I want to ask you is um, in relation to what you've shared about Macedonia, which I think has been beautiful, you know, really beautiful. Um, I, I'd like to know, I think, some of the history of this country um, when it's come to wars has been National Days of Prayer and things like Dunkirk and the Battle of Britain, which have been incredible events that have taken place. Have you got any stories from Macedonia where um, there's been stories of prayer and, and really a sense of God intervening in the situation? Yes, yes. Actually, we are, I can, I can think of uh, one particular, particular case and it is, it is about uh, one man who lived in, in a city called Mostar. And uh, as he was developing, as he was growing uh, as a young man, he was a completely committed atheist. And uh, the war started, he was working in some casinos, he was making big money at the time. And he, he started dating a girl who was of different ethnicity and different religion as well. But along that long path, the, uh, his sister, uh, who was also a mixed marriage, between a servant and a cry, gave birth to a baby. And uh, the, every side was basically saying, if, if they went, came to the Muslim side, they said, oh, but one of you is not Muslim, so we are taking care of the Muslim needs. The other side said, oh, but we are taking care only of the, only of the, uh, uh, what's a Christian or Catholic, whatever mm -hmm. it was. And there was a pastor in that, in that, in that city. And he was on his knees, praying that day, that God will show to someone in dire need. So they come. Eventually, they, they go around the city. They cannot find any help for a newborn baby. So they come to this small church. They come to this small kind of warehouse where this man has all kind of necessities because of the, of the, of the relief. And the first thing he says, the first thing he says, can I see a bird's day? And the heart of this mother and the grandmother just sunk in the, in the pit of their being. They say, again, it will show. And the guy looks at that and he, he realizes what they're thinking. He says, no, 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 no. I couldn't care less what, who you are, by your last name, whether you're a Serb, a Croat, or a Muslim. I couldn't care less. I just want to see a birth certificate. Because some people come and they say they have a baby, but they don't. <laughs> so I need a birth certificate. So to make sure that the baby so they produce the birth certificate, and the pastor delivers them with all these things. Later on, the mother gets saved. She becomes a Christian. She is full of love and response. And then eventually, her son, who was living in all this kind of a uh, very, very kind of wild life, basically, uh, in that city, he also came to faith. And because of that faith, they had to travel to another country in Serbia to live as refugees there, to move to yet another place in Cyprus to, to try to discover uh, uh, and to make, uh, make life there, until the moment 
when God told them that they need to go back to Sarajevo and begin uh, a church in the Ministry of Reconciliation. So that one prayer mm -hmm. of that pastor on that day. And that openness to help whoever, whoever opened the door and knocked at that door made all the difference. And not the difference only for them, but it has made a difference for so many people that I'm aware of to this very day. They are benefiting from that miraculous prayer to this very day. And this man was one of the hardest hardened people you can imagine. And, uh, and he, he genuinely, he says, uh, I think out of nine people that were in that circle, including the, the boss of this uh, chain of casinos, eight are dead, apparently. All of them died in a, in a mafia kind of uh, uh, One prayer, making all that difference. Does anyone else? Yes, at the back. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, how did you come to faith? Well, thank you for asking this question. <laughs> I grew up in a church. Actually, I come from the same background of the same church. Maybe some of you would know there was a president who was a Protestant president of Macedonia between 2001 and 2004 who died tragically in a plane crash. His name was Boris Tchaikovsky. So it's from the same context, from the same background, the Methodist background I come from. And I went to church every day until I was, you know, as a, as a child. I hated church. I just hated it. All I thought I could think of was that the church was reduced to God is a sadist who wants me to take all my joy, all my fun. And also, all the sermons, I thought at least, that's how I, I interpret them, were reduced to... If you're a child, you go home, you drink your milk, eat your cookies, and tidy your bedroom. You know? Pretty much that was all I thought it was. I hated it. I hated the experience. Until two African people from Nigeria came. They came to study medicine. And they found a church. We couldn't preach the gospel outside during communism. It was forbidden. So you couldn't go anywhere else. But these two people very soon discovered there was a plenty of work in the church. Many people like me. One of these people befriended me. And in between my ninth and my 16th year, for seven years, he was pursuing me. He started preaching the gospel in the church, inside the church, indoors. And revival started happening. Many of the people that I know of now that are actually leading some churches, pastors, they're leading some Christian ministries, and etc., ministries of reconciliation, have actually come to faith through such ministry. For those six or seven years, this man kept explaining to me what the depth of faith, what the love of Christ was, until I got it, until I re realized that was it. And when I was 16, I had a very, very dramatic conversion. It was very obvious. As you could tell, I'm actually an introvert. You can't say <laughs> on me, basically. So it was very obvious. It was very obvious, it was almost like all those adverts in commercials before and after. And I have discovered that at 16. And that enthusiasm, that joy, and that love has never left me. And I'm so thankful to God for these two faithful African people who came to study medicine. But it's also saving, not only healing people, but God used them to save people as well. We've got time for one last question. Does anyone have that? So, you mentioned 
the lack of courage in personal experience. Can you share the redemptive, liberating aspect you've gone through of suffering? Through, through suffering? Yeah. Ah. Well, you're asking for another story. Yeah. Personal, yeah. very deep. I was, I was doing my doctorate in Oxford, second year. I've just passed my, what they call, and maybe you would know, and maybe uh, some of you certainly, something which was called confirmation of status, big thing. You come to Oxford, you're a probationary research student, you're a non-entity. And basically, <laughs> until you pass that, you're all the time on a shaky ground. So I've just passed my confirmation of status, which we, my wife and I, found <coughs> such a great, tremendous thing. I went to continue to be diligent to continue with my studies. I was my, on my bicycle, and as I was crossing a main street, a main road, somebody in a Jaguar just came speeding without seeing me, hit me with full speed, some 35 miles an hour, no brakes, tossed me in the air, I flew some 10 meters and landed head on, face on, on an oncoming bonnet of another car, BMW. So I think, to stop there, I think for the time being, at least I'm safe in traffic, because the higher level of cars next is Rolls Royce, and they're not very often on the street, so I'm safe. I had 14 fractures in my, uh, in my face. Uh, they had to stitch my eyelids. And at that very moment, this happened like, a, like 500 meters from our place where we were staying. I was able to, call my, to tell the number, so they called my wife. She ran. She came to me, and I was looking face to face. We were looking at each other. And at that moment, at that look, at that look of love and compassion and care, I knew not that everything will be fine. I knew at that very moment, everything is fine. It took me six months to recover, but as we were discovering this depth and love and care, even through immense suffering, I'm claustrophobic. For a month, I suffered terribly from claustrophobic attacks because I was like all in wires and I couldn't quite breathe. But what happened in the hospital was quite miraculous. Because of that openness, I believe, because of that attitude, because of the prayers of my wife and, and my child and, and, and a lot of friends, people actually flocked to me. People who worked in the hospital flocked around me. They wanted to talk. They wanted to ask questions. And I started praying for them. Now, it was me, my turn, to give, uh, to, to give a favor to an African, Nigeria. So a guy comes, and he's kind of clean. He's the orderly. I don't know what is the name of the guy. And I tell him, please, can you operate this bed so I can just kind of be up, a bit uplifted, a little bit. And he says, also, no, I'm just here to clean. The nurses do this. I, cannot, I must not touch this bed. And I say, fine. But after he's turned clean, I said, oh, excuse me, sir, what is your name? And he says, my name is Luxon. I say, Luxon, where are you from? And Luxon says, from Nigeria. I say, wow, I know people from Nigeria, Luxon. I say, I look how long you've been here. And Luxon says, for four years. Family? He says, yeah, I have four children and my wife, all of them in Nigeria. We're trying to be reunited. And I say, Luxon, can you come closer? So he comes to me. I hold his hand. And I say, Luxon, would you mind if I pray that you will be reunited with your family? So as I was praying, tears were streaming down Luxon's face. But what was the perk of that? was that immediately he started operating my back. <laughs> <laughs> and then, the very next day, uh, I think 
he was uh, in a way competing with the nurses who were bringing me more food. I couldn't chew, but they bring me a lot of milkshakes. 